Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. It has been a crazy couple of weeks, both on my end with coming back from the Merchant Risk Council conference last week. I know a lot of you are as well. I hope if you weren't able to attend that you at least appreciated Tuesday's episode and it helped alleviate some of your FOMO. I was reminded just how important it is for all of us to get together and collaborate more often. And I know that as fraudology expands, that's something that we want to help enable more of. And there is just one of me, but I'm hoping that that is something that we can do more. And I do have a pretty awesome team that I work with. But on today's episode, I wanted to especially dive into a very large headline. And there's been several over the last couple of weeks, but probably one of the craziest things that is most likely impacted most of you in one way or another, even if it's just reading a lot of articles about it. But I think a lot more than that is all this news about Silicon Valley Bank. If you haven't heard, I don't know where you are. I mean, actually, if I'm being fair and honest, I hadn't heard until Friday when I got on the plane and my husband sent me a text and said, I'm not sure if you got to see this yet or not. And my husband knows that Silicon Valley Bank played a very large part in my career. In fact, there's just no way I was thinking about it today. There is no way that my career would have been what it is or what it became for good and for bad. Let's be clear. We all have those good and bad parts of our career, right? If it wasn't for Silicon Valley Bank. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that, about just my own history with Silicon Valley Bank, because I think it's fascinating and some of you will probably find it very interesting. But I'm also going to talk a little bit about some of the early headlines coming out about some of the suspicions about what happened and what and who is to blame. But also there is significant amount of fraud that can happen because of this, that it will especially be targeting companies within the tech sector, whether you bank with Silicon Valley publicly or not, whether your investors bank with them or not. I'm already seeing emails coming out about it that are legitimate from companies that I work with as a consultant or that I have worked with, saying if your bank account is changing because of Silicon Valley Bank, here's the process, let us know. And there are a lot of fraudsters that are taking advantage of that too, guys. So I will end this episode with some tips on how to prepare your accounts payable or finance team to be aware of this and help them prevent any very large fraud that could happen through your accounts payable through invoice. While that may not be card not present, maybe that may not be banking, it's still very important and part of fraud and fraudology. And honestly, what probably most of your company expects you to keep them in the loop in. So I wanted to make sure that I share that with you if that's something you just haven't had time to think about, which would be completely understandable. So I'm not going to spend too much time on my own history with SVB just because that's not as important as the rest of the episode. But I've talked before about my own career path and how I started in payment processing actually at the help desk, which helped me really understand A to Z, everything about payment processing, especially on the internet. I actually worked for a much larger bank in their merchant processing for 
under a year and then had some complications with my pregnancy with my daughter, which was, gosh, 19 years ago. And so I had to leave that role after my daughter was born and all of that. Several of the people that I had worked with at the bigger bank went to a new payment processor in town that was the operations was launched by the person who had headed up the larger bank in my hometown. It was cheaper for call center employees. And because I had some experience and extensive training from the bigger bank and because that smaller processor paid a whole dollar an hour more than the bigger bank. I applied there and got the job and it really started my career. I had no idea that would be the case. But it, being in the help desk, I got to answer all kinds of questions. And I was especially curious about questions that went to the fraud department. And there was one specific person in the underwriting and fraud department that kind of unnecessarily took me under his wing, probably more tolerated me. I think anyone who's been in fraud has probably come across a very excited customer service agent that sometimes that phrase, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, but he really helped me and I applied for a position. And the way that this payment processor worked is they were an independent payment processor. So rather than the payment processor that we worked for before that was for a large acquirer, this was for an ISO and an independent sales organization. And we did the payment processing on behalf of a lot of different companies. Some of them were sales organizations. Verisign was one of the biggest ones, which actually was bought out by PayPal. But that was probably the biggest e-commerce portfolio at the time. And we're talking like the early and mid 2000s after the first uh, bubble burst. So very interesting time in tech. They also did the payment processing on behalf of some banks that didn't have, weren't large enough to be acquirers themselves. Some of them were local banks across the country. We had some in the South, some in the Northwest, some in the Midwest. I'm not sure if I can name them all, so I'm just going to say all that. And one of them was Silicon Valley Bank. And the way that the risk analysts work is worked at the time was depending on the size of the portfolio, you would either be assigned to one bank or several to look at their risk. And it also depended on the liability. So specific to SVB, the liability went to Silicon Valley Bank first. So if a merchant could not pay for all the chargebacks that came in for their company, then hopefully Silicon Valley had put enough in reserves for themselves. If not, it was on SVB to cover. And then finally, if SVB couldn't cover that, which would be very large, then it would be on our company. And my role, and I believe this was part of what SVB paid the processor for within the fees and things like that, was to really oversee their accounts, oversee all of their merchant accounts, which is a different type of risk than looking at e-commerce directly, because you're not looking at the customer info. You have no idea who the products are going to or who it is. You're just seeing the dollar amounts. You're seeing the dates, you're seeing, you know, the time, it's little things like that, right? But you're able to see patterns. And thankfully, we had a pretty progressive system at the time, definitely not on the back end. The files were still built in DOS when I left like 17 years ago, and I think they still are in some extent now. But it's as far as being able to look for anomalies and exception reporting. So I would get alerts every day on different accounts hey, this is different than what they this account said they would, et cetera. And it was really risky for SVB, especially a lot of these companies had never had any history accepting credit cards before. So they would put down their application what they expected to get, what their average transaction would be, and what they thought they would get every month or every day or every week. But that would range from very conservative to very crazy. And so we'd have to be, just look at the details, especially for a while. There also were a lot of them were high risk. At the time, the biggest company on the SVB portfolio was Classmates.com. That tells you how long I've been in the internet and how 
I often say I grew up with it, but it was a very large company at the time. We'd see tons and tons of membership fees. There was, I think I talked about it around the Super Bowl. There was one company that was a prepaid mobile company that put out an ad on the Super Bowl. And then they were in the VDMPs very quickly. A few months later, the Visa dispute monitoring program and actually went out of business because of that. So I worked very closely with SVB whenever merchants would end up on those dispute monitoring lists, whenever I would see some crazy anomalies, whenever I would see, wow, there's a really large refund all of a sudden on a card that wasn't, didn't have a sale on it. That obviously would often look like some kind of insider fraud. That didn't happen as often online just because of the way that these were set up and all that then, but just some interesting things like that. So I had some really incredible experiences and got to work with some really great people at SVB. And quite honestly, I did not understand just how lucky I was or how much of a front row seat to technology and history I was getting. I know I've told this story before, but one of the companies on my portfolio that landed on the VDMP list, actually, they were already on it when I started the portfolio. And I joke that the reason why I got this portfolio is probably because I was the youngest person and I understood the internet. I don't think that's too far off. The person who had had it before was just kind of apathetic and not passionate about fraud. And I think there had been some complaints about that and wanting someone who would pay attention to details and things. And I don't know exactly what the decisions were on that, but somehow I inherited this and I saw it as a gift, but so many other people in my department saw it as a curse. But I really took it as a challenge. I didn't know any different. So I just dove in. And that's kind of how I've always done it. So when I get the VDMP list, especially because the person who had got the portfolio before hadn't done a lot, I had to dive right in. And there was one company that was on the fourth month. And I think it was a good between the fifth and the sixth month where charges start to come up, where it's $50 a month on top of your regular chargeback fees per chargeback. And then there can be even more fees. It was a little bit different last, not last year, a couple of decades, but uh, still the same kind of concept. And so I got in touch with them, with the bank, and then they, their relationship manager got in touch with the merchant. We'd have to have several calls. I would look at the merchant's account and say, okay, so this is really weird. You have one merchant account, but you have thousands of transactions for under $5. And then you have hundreds of transactions for thousands of, that's really weird. Usually we would have them be separate. Why is it together? What are these for? What's happening? Okay, it looks like these thousands of dollar transactions are often the ones being charged back. What are those for? Can you research those on your side and figure out what are the patterns? And through that conversation, we realized that those were for so a social media company. So thousands of dollars were being paid for ads, real-time ads that were being put on social media company. And then those small dollar transactions were just gifts, G-I-F-T-S. I feel like these days I have to spell that out to keep it from G-I-F-S. Obviously, I just split that out. But in a way, they didn't want to split it out because those small dollar transactions were really helping their ratio. Even though they were over the 1%, if they took those away, they'd be well over 1%. So there was some conversations around those. And I had to have several meetings with the founder of the company. And I remember finding out that once they looked into these transactions, the original ones, they said, oh, yeah, it's obviously fraud. They're all coming from Russian IP addresses. They're all advertising things like mail order bride catalogs, which I thought was fascinating. So an ad on the social media company would look like $19.99, get a catalog of mail order brides sent to you in the mail. And then you would click on a link and you would fill out a form. You would hope that malware wasn't downloaded on your computer at the time. And then you would give them your credit card number, your address, your name, et cetera. 
And you probably would never get that catalog in the mail, but you might get your credit card charged fraudulently down the line. But what was happening was the people who were taking out these ads also using a stolen credit card to make the purchases on the social media company. When talking with the founder, I said, it's really important that at least right now, in order to get off this list, in order to get your fraud chargebacks under the right ratio, you need to be reviewing your chargebacks. You need to have somebody in place. It could be a college student. It could be an intern. Granted, this is way before there was technology to do this automatically. Now you're like, wow, that was really manual queries. But this was kind of the first of its kind. Like, this is very important. And I did the math really quickly to explain to them just how expensive it was going to get if they couldn't do this in the next month. And their relationship manager had to take more money in reserves because they were concerned. What if the company goes under? What if they can't do this? They're still raising funds and they're still, I think might've been seed round. It was 2000, early 2007, maybe their A round, but they were still raising funds, but they weren't that big and they weren't well known. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology, and one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. And I remember talking to the founder and saying, okay, this is what, you know, you're going to need to do. I can see them on my end. The problem is all of these transactions look the same to me, so I can't review them. You'll need someone on your end who's seeing all these customer charges and the names and, and all that and things that look obvious to you when you look back at them and cancel these before they go online. That way you can not charge the card and that way you won't get charged back. You'll just void the transaction. And I very clearly remember the founder saying, there's no way I can hire someone to do that. I have two employees in my loft apartment. I can't hire a human to look at every ad before they go online. And I remember saying, this is what it's going to cost you if you don't. And that was one very clear phone call 
I also remember getting off of that phone call and going back to my desk because I was in a conference room with the relationship manager on our side or my processor who I became good friends with and actually ended was in my wedding, random side note. But, and then went back to my desk and I looked at my team and I said, this guy I just talked to thinks he's going to have the next MySpace. And he's younger than, obviously, his name was Mark Zuckerberg. And actually within the movie, The Social Network, is that what it's called? Yeah. It actually shows his character going into SVB to create an account. And I always said, wait, what about the girl in Spokane, Washington that was there and was helping you not get chargebacks and not have your visa account shut down because you were a couple months away from not being able to accept credit cards anymore. Now, granted, if they would have grown as big as they did, who knows, right? Never going to rewrite history. I am not taking credit for the success of Facebook, especially because I never got stock or a thank you card. But that's just one example of how big SVB has been in the world of technology, as well as in my life. And that was quite the story. And honestly, it was one I didn't tell for years. Even after Facebook got big, it took me a long time to even get a Facebook account as a, person, a member just because I was like, they have fraud. <laughs> now it's like everyone has fraud. If, I, if, that was my, if that was my benchmark, I would never be online. But I got to see some crazy things and, and work with a lot of really interesting companies. There were several that never really made it up. There were others that made it quite far in their household names now. There was another one that had a really big impact on my career, and that's Bag Borrowers. They were one of my clients. They also ha were having some chargeback issues, probably because Steel was in the name, but they were the precursor to Rent the Runway and all other rent websites these days. I know there are a lot of them. I've talked to several of them recently, especially with the economy, a lot more things wanting to go to rental, but we were the first ones and they were the first ones and they were headquartered in Seattle. And that was a few hours drive from where I was. And coincidentally, I was in a long distance relationship with someone who lived there and I was a single mom, had, I don't know, high hopes and wasn't sure how it was going to happen, but maybe to be able to go to Seattle. So when I uh, gave my notice to the processor to leave. I had gotten another job in Seattle, but I wasn't crazy about it. It was just something to get me over there. And they helped with the relocation a little bit. But I mentioned to that group who I really enjoyed working with that I would be moving to Seattle. And if they decided to hire someone full-time for a position, that I would love to talk to them. And two months later, they were featured in Sex and the City, the movie. And I sent an email to their CFO saying, hey, I know you guys had fraud and chargeback issues before. I have a feeling now that the whole world knows that you guys exist, you might be having more of them. Let me know if you want to talk. And I think it was like a week or less than two weeks that I was hired. And it's because of that job, I learned so many lessons uh, in life and in tech and in just the world and all things, but especially in fraud. And I got to start a fraud department from the ground up. And anyone who's done that knows how much you learn. I just so many crazy lessons and I never would have been able to test out the hypotheses I had on the processor side about reducing chargebacks holistically on the merchant side had I worked at Bagbar Steel. And then because of working at Bagbar Steel, I spoke about chargebacks at MRC 2010, was recruited by Expedia to create their friendly fraud process for their chargebacks, then got to do things for Etsy and um, when they were creating their fundamental, I mean, just on and on and on, right? And like I said, this is not a Carissa's career podcast, but I think it's fascinating just how much fraud has changed, how much e-commerce has changed, how much tech has changed in the last 20 years. And I think that up until recently, maybe even just a few days ago, most people had no idea 
what Silicon Valley Bank was or just how instrumental they have been in creating so much innovation and funding so much innovation. And this isn't to say that they are the best company in the world. Obviously, mistakes have been made. And I haven't worked with them for over 15 years, but I still have close connections there. I actually just spoke with someone pretty senior in the risk side of the organization this morning, uh, said they still have their jobs, but everything is uncertain right now. And I offered to help them in any way that I can. And I'm planning on inviting them onto the podcast. I have no idea if they can come on, but even just having them talk about risk management at SVB over their career would be fascinating, I think. So whether it's soon or whether it's down the line, I hope that they can join us. And I know that they are, there's 8,500 employees that are really unsure what's going to happen to them. If anything, we can send our empathy their way. And so just going back, so that's my own attachment to SVB. Wanted to share that for a few reasons, right? So one is, like I said, how crazy tech has impacted all of our lives, but also how instrumental SVB has been in all of that. And to talk about how bring us up to now. I was only on the risk on the payment processing side. There were so many other channels of SVB and I actually had a very good mentor of mine who shared a lot of knowledge and just helped me get over some of some, not all, of my imposter syndrome before there was even a word from when moving to Seattle. And so I care deeply about a lot of people that have worked at SVB, but that doesn't mean that we can't talk about them and explain what's going on and especially get to how your company may be targeted not by SVB by any chance, by any means, but because fraudsters love opportunity. I do think it's crazy to think about how we're living through historic times in technology. We already have and we are now. Sometimes we don't think about that. But just last week when I was running into a few people that I feel like I grew up with in this industry that I've known for 15 years or more, thinking about some of the companies they worked for before and how they're not around, you know, they worked for this small DVD rental company that's now the largest streaming company in the world, just crazy things like that and how much growth there is. It's just interesting. And I know a lot of you that listen to this podcast have been impacted in one way or another by this news about SVB. And I mentioned that at the beginning. Whether you weren't sure if payroll would happen this last week, if investor funds would be released into your account, if customer transactions would be paid out or in, I know there's at least one marketplace that had to make an announcement that they weren't going to be able to pay some of their sellers because of accounts that were tied up in SVB. Thankfully, the U.S. government has come in through the FDIC and is backing up those deposits. But there's going to be a lot of investigations and there are already at least two lawsuits against the CEO and the COO that are claiming fraud and deception. I find it really interesting that just literally a day before the bank run happened or before a lot of the headlines occurred about Silicon Valley, they posted on LinkedIn how excited they were to be named one of Forbes's top banks in America for 2023. Sometimes all that glitters isn't gold, right? And that's some concern. I know I've seen some headlines as well. The companies that audited them as recently as a month or two ago saying that everything was great. And given where their investments lied and where they came from and where they put some of the money to, some of the deposits to continue to grow that, it's hard to understand why they would think everything was okay. But all of that, so there's been some speculation, right? And this is all still new news, even if not directly in the combination of the crypto crisis and the fallout of FTX and the many others that were dependent on them, the insane amount of investment funds that flowed quickly and then were like relatively shut off pretty quickly this last year. And then the slowing payback of real estate investments, it just didn't match all of the volatile. So 
a lot of people are saying that they think the SVB was in a unique place since it was so many of its eggs, so to speak, were in the tech basket. But you never know. There was a recent study published in the Journal of Financial Economics that estimates that only a third of corporate frauds are detected, with an average of 10% of large publicly traded firms committing securities fraud every year. At first, it's like, wow, okay, so only a third of corporate frauds are detected. But then if you've worked in corporate America or even companies internationally, that may not be as surprising as you think. I remember when the Elizabeth Holmes news came out and how so many people in tech said the only thing different between Elizabeth Holmes and my CEO is the fact that she got caught. Or with Madoff, right? Would Bernie Madoff have ever been caught had there not been the 2008 financial crisis? I am not at all justifying them. I hope I'm not sounding flippant. It's just, it's fascinating to me. I think those of us that are in any kind of fraud are obsessed with human behavior and, you know, how much people think that they can get away with until they can't. And they never think that unexpected moment is going to come. And so it's fascinating. So back to that study, they're saying that means that the true extent of corporate fraud is much larger than what's currently estimated. They're also estimating that corporate fraud destroys 1.6% equity value each year, which is $830 billion in 2021. Or that's what it was. Some of the examples in the study obviously were FTX. I think that we are still learning all of the dependencies and different companies that were tied into FTX and all of just that fraud and corporate greed with Sam Bankman Freed. I had Stephen Sargent on the podcast months ago when that first happened, talking about that, just how you know insane that was. And I know since then, Sam Bankman-Fried has been arrested and then he was out on bail and just all back and forth. And But really, at the end of the day, there's just so much fallout from that with different people, whether it's celebrities or big companies just putting a little bit of money in there, or, you know, something like that, or just crypto in general was really impacted by FTX. I don't hear many people talking about it anymore, but Wirecard was a huge fraud issue, huge instance of corporate fraud. Just as recently as 2022, I felt like it was like three years ago, but they're a payment processor out of Germany. And they were brought up a couple times last week because at least one of the conferences, they were an exhibitor that was run by the organization. And there's just, it's a lot of very, you know, this world is very small and interconnected, I think is kind of my point. Another company, an example of corporate greed that was shared in that report was Luckin Coffee in China. I remember just vaguely hearing about this, but I know that their profits were like grossly overestimated. And at the end of the day, I think what all of this means is just if there wasn't a case for strong risk management and internal controls and oversight before, there is now. And I know that I'm preaching to the converted. Everyone here is within those roles or works closely with them. We know how often they can be seen as an inconvenient necessity. Whether you are in transaction fraud, account monitoring, like at the front end from customers, whether you are in risk management and corporate fraud detection or forensic accounting, or whether you're on the bankings with BSA or AML and money laundering, all of those things, I think oftentimes it's depending on the dollar compared to what's invested everywhere else. But as Gil and I said, Gil Rosenthal and I said months ago, whenever there's an economic downturn, risk becomes a necessity more than ever, not just to find those pennies or hundreds of thousands of dollars in the couch cushion, so to speak, but also to protect your company and your bottom line. Because it often is during those economic downturns when risks and lies and fudging of documents and these things that seem safe often get revealed quite loudly. 
And so it's helpful to have a conversation with your leadership to say, hey, look at SCB. This is just another reason why it's important to invest in these things. And not just that, but also in reputable audit. There's been some questions about the very big famous names that have audited these companies. Wirecard, as well as SVB, were both audited by very large, well-known firms. And there's a lot of questions there. How much was really audited? Is it self-reporting? And they're just saying, okay, this is what you provided us. And so that, yep, we'll just take your word for it. Are they really digging in? All these things, because technology is so interdependent, it's so important to get that right. And more than anything, the biggest reason why risk is so important is for your customer's trust. Think of all the people who realized, oh, I have, or companies that realize I have way more money than the FDIC insurers. I think there were 97% of people with, that had money at SVB that had more than $250,000 in USD in the bank, meaning that they had no reason to think that money wouldn't be covered because in the US, because of the FDIC, $250,000 per depositor is guaranteed, I think per bank, but I don't know exactly how that works. And if you have multiple millions of dollars in there, you have no reason to think that's going to go away. Thankfully, the U.S. government stepped in and is protecting those and backing those so that people can be paid and all of that. But hopefully it's a band-aid that doesn't need to be stretched across anything else. And hopefully it helps not cause a domino effect like it could. I am not an economist, so I'm just going to, from what I understand, that I see that as a good thing. I'm sure there's always a counter argument for that. But knowing how many companies rely on this bank, how much money was rolled up into it and just how many things are dependent on it. I think it was the, it seems like the right call, right? Like I said, I think there's going to be more and more headlines and answers around what happened and why and who should have known what and when and all of those things. But going down to how you can protect your own company now, the biggest thing that's going to happen is that there are, there's just so much chaos, right? And whenever there's chaos and uncertainty, there's opportunity. And we know that fraudsters are massive opportunists. And like I mentioned, I'm already getting emails from, Companies that I've done business with before that I've invoiced for services, right? So that, you know, I'm a small business getting emails from their very legitimate ones from their accounts payable system saying, if you have a deposit account with SB and you're planning on changing it to another bank, here's the process to do that. Already fraudsters know that this is a great opportunity for them. So adding to that chaos as well as uncertainty is just all these executives who are really all over the place, right? They're under a lot of stress and often people's cards go down. And it'll make them more likely to fall prey to an email that can contain any news. And especially if it's good news where you know, they're saying, hey, we're, this bank is offering benefits for SVB or something like that. Or oftentimes it will say, I think the most common right now so far is saying if you, if we owe you money, change actually. So there's two different ways, right? So one is you may have people impersonating probably social engineers, impersonate companies that you may do business with. And especially for large organizations, you probably do business with hundreds, if not thousands of vendors. And so you can't keep track of them all. And they'll be trying to send emails. They'll be trying to say, hey, click on this link to get more information for the malware or whatever else, spyware, et cetera. Or they will try to contact via phishing email or a phone, your AP department to say, hi, this is CBC vendor. And they're going to either assume that you do business with them or because 
their logos on your website or your logos on their website, they'll know that you do business with them. And they may say, I'm sure you've heard that you know, about Silicon Valley Bank, we need to change our deposit account. How can I do that? And they may hopefully get somebody that just takes their word for it and give them a new bank account number over the phone. That hopefully will not be the case at any one company who listens to this podcast, but that is certainly a possibility. And the hope is to have a fraudster update their own bank account in place of a legitimate vendor that your company pays. And so there, then you will end up paying a fraudster who then, you know, and the regular vendor won't get paid, et cetera, et cetera. There's various variations of this that people are assuming could happen. I think it's just as easy to assume that a CEO could be tricked into being told by an investor, hey, we, all of our money is locked up in SVB. And since we already invested in you, can you just give us a loan back for a little bit? Which would be highly not okay, but I could see it happening. And that might not be a real investor. So all those things, I think really at the end of the day, it comes down to educating your finance department, especially accounts payable and accounts receivable on social engineering and phishing best practices. The episode that I ran last week with Robert Kerbeck, who is a former corporate spy, would be excellent for them to listen to. He's highly entertaining as well as had some great information. One of the best tips he gave was the fact that social engineers will often play on that sense of urgency and either out of fear or excitement, either good news or, oh my gosh, I'm going to lose my job. And the best thing to do is just take a step back, right? If somebody's asking you to do something, walk away from your computer if it's on email or put them on hold if it's on a phone call. If someone's contacting you for that, write down the information, but don't do anything. Don't, I would not give them, I would not give anyone the login information for your AP system. I would not give them any kind of access. If someone says, I need to know how to change it online. Say, okay, either we will, the best way to do, and I know this could be manual, is we will contact the person on file for your account via phone number, via the phone number that we have on file and walk them through it. But other ways you can do that is we sent an email, et cetera, but do not allow for password reset. If anyone calls and says, oh, I can't get my password. Can you just reset my password in the AP system? Anything like that. Also knowing just never, ever click a link in an email. That goes even for if you get something from your bank and it says, check your account balance here. Just go out to the bank website or open up the app on your phone. That is 1000% safer than any kind of phishing. I did look on some fraudster uh, communication channels this morning and they're definitely already aligning and making plans and talking about different ways to crack accounts, credential stuffing on SVB and other things, as well as invoice fraud. So really just preparing it. This is also a great way for you to demonstrate how important you are to your company and how valuable you are to your company. Even if your main job is to keep fraudsters and people who are stealing credit cards and using them on your e-commerce site or who are trying to steal bank accounts or other things, launder funds, etc. from using your website or your company, this is a great way for you to say, hey, I also just want to make sure that we're safe in all areas. What are we doing about this? Can we make sure that we have a process in place? Anytime someone changes, requests bank changes to deposit accounts, whether it's from SVB or not, Signature Bank is also getting headlines. I'm not as well-versed on that one, but I also know it doesn't have as much of an impact right now as SVB. Definitely let them know, right? This is a good way that you can help protect your company and also show your value. And that I think is something that we are always trying to do in this industry.
And also, I think I said it, but in addition to your finance team and your accounts payable, if you do have a direct line to your executives, I highly recommend just putting them in on this. They more than ever, especially founders and all that, are just very stressed out and probably taking a lot of phone calls. Even if your company doesn't have the bulk of its money in SVB, I guarantee you that companies that they you do a lot of business with do. It's definitely causing a lot of chaos and uncertainty. And like I said, that is Fraudster's favorite breeding ground. All right, guys, this has been quite a week and I have no doubt that next week will be too, but I will be here to share some fraud news with you and I look forward to speaking with you more next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.